All right, Genesis 2, 5 through 25. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, there where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For then in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was no helper, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. As you guys know, we are going through our storied uh, sermon series because we are storied people. And so we're looking at the, the broad, the vast, the fast uh, overview of the story of Scripture, how it forms one story from the beginning to the end. And it's important for us to have stories in our lives because uh, we live into stories and we live out of them. And the most important story, as I am constantly reminded in my life, is the one that God tells us about us, who we are, who He has created us to be. And so we want to get that into us. We want that story to be a part of our, our veins, our bodies, our muscle twitches, so that when, when we're up against someone telling us a different story about who we are, we can go back, twitch, 
and feel the story that God has given us. And it's one that we have to go back to over and over and over again. I had friends in high school that could watch a movie once and have all the lines memorized to Austin Powers or Office Space or whatever it was. I am not that person. I have to watch things over and over and over again. I don't retain information that way. And it is often the case with Scripture and the story that God tells in our lives as well. We have to revisit this for ourselves so that it is the immediate muscle twitch that we have uh, when we are up against a different story being told about who we are and about who God is as well. I think there are a few temptations that we face when we come to Genesis 2. Usually we talk about temptations in Genesis 3, but there are a few when we come to Genesis 2 as well. If you're familiar with uh, the story of um, creation, a lot of times we look at the differences between Genesis 1 and 2, and we see very different stories, but it's really just different, the same story told in different ways. One is a very poetic way of explaining um, how God created uh, the heavens and the earth. The other is much more nitty-gritty, the details. One is like the the montage overview of everything happening, and it's soft focus, and it's beautiful. The other is like the reality of it. One is Instagram. The other is all the things happening outside that one thousandth of a second that it took them to take that picture as well. So we a lot of times focus on the differences. A lot of times we jump to conclusions on how the story plays out. Uh, I've heard this. I'm very familiar with Genesis 1 and 2. No matter what your church background is, I'm sure you've heard this story before, and you kind of go, okay, okay, you know, I know this story. Let's just keep moving. This is just very intricate. But we lose a lot of the details of what God is trying to tell us and what the writer is trying to emphasize to us as well. Another temptation is to focus on humankind. There is a shift, and it is a very specific story about how God creates humans in particular, but rather than we, we make the shift to focus on humans rather than focusing on God because he still remains the subject of most of the sentences in this story. He is still the primary actor, and he still guides the narrative. And we move from this poetic story of Genesis 1 to this personal story in Genesis 2. I think a couple weeks ago I said that uh, the writer of Genesis 1 used the uh, personal name of God. I misspoke. He uses the broad name of God in Hebrew, Elohim. And here, though, we see that God is named personally Elohim Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush. It is uh, a conglomeration of uh, consonants. There are no actual vowels in it, but what it means is I am who I am, and that is his personal name. He is who he is, the God Most High, revealing himself personally to us. Because in a personal God who created us, he created us to be in a personal relationship with him. Genesis 1 focuses a little bit more on the Imago Dei, the image of God being uh, created in this hu- in humankind. Uh, we don't have that name here, but we were created to reflect God um, in his how in who he is. And there's a number of ways in which um, God does that. 
um, which I'm getting a little off track a little bit, but uh, God has put his image into us. We are made to reflect his image in who we are and how we live out our lives. But he does so, and he does so in creating us as needy beings. We are needy from the very beginning of our lives. God, we needed to be formed. We needed to have the breath of God breathed into us. We needed to be guided and placed and um, even brought to a companion as well in our lives. We are constantly in need. Even now, I think we are in need. Our children are constantly in need of food, of their butts being wiped. They need to be clothed. They need to be disciplined. They need to be loved. They need to have security. They need to have companionship. And as adults, we still desperately need all of these things. I think God created us to be in need of him and to find all these things in him. In a personal relationship with a personal God, we can find these things. He says he provides. He provides three things for us. He provides presence. Uh, with not not gifts, but presence. He provides purpose, and he provides partnership. Presence, purpose, and partnership. In presence, we have this beautiful image. To me, this is one of the more descriptive narratives of all of Scripture and how it just describes the land and what Eden is. And it's kind of, it's this misty land. It's swampy and it's flourishing. It's cool. It's just kind of like entering into, I think of like, uh, what's it called? Pandora and Avatar of just this lushness all around and just misting up from the ground and just all this possibility is ready to take place, this jungle. And in it, God reaches into his hands, into the dirt and the soil, the hummus, and he makes, he formed a shaped, a human, a man, it says. This, um, the, we usually call him Adam, uh, but that is the name, just means man. And it comes from the word for soil, for hummus, Adama in, in Hebrew as well. So he forms a man out of the hummus, out of the ground here. And then he places him in the garden. It is rich. It is abundant. There are rivers flowing. There are, um, it is a place for abundant life, providing resources, food, beauty, creativity, and it's boundaried as well. So as Nick and I were talking this morning, it's, there's, there's all, the whole world that he creates, and then there's Eden, and then there's a garden in Eden. He puts them in a very specific place. Um, and most gardens are boundaried. And this one is as well. There are two trees, it says. There's kind of there's this one called the tree of life, and the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's foreshadowing a little bit. And he's giving it, and we're going like, okay, what's going on here? But there are these two trees. But it's just an absolute sensory experience for the man. And God calls it good. There's no threat. At this point, there's nothing that is endangering him in his life. There's no temptation. But again, the focus is on what God is doing and how uh, he is providing presence. He's providing life to this man. He forms him. In forming him, he shows forth his sovereignty. He still is able to come in and bring life out of the dirt, out of the soil. 
and then he breathes life into him. Just as we saw in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. Here we have the Spirit of God. That's the same Hebrew word, the Ruach, God breathing life into the man. That same Spirit that hovered over the earth is now breathed into this person. And this presence that we have is just simply life abundant this sovereignty and intimacy that we are able to have that the man had with god breathing is something that is incredibly important in our lives woody and i were talking two weeks ago um, about how just like in sports how usually we project into the future of who we are or we look into the past of where we've been, and this doesn't just happen in sports, but to be able to focus in the present, the way that we do that, Woody explained to me, is through our breath. And so having breathing exercises, being able to focus in this moment, to be present in a place is to breathe and to breathe in the life of God. When Evelyn is overwhelmed and her emotions are at full tilt and there's nothing else we can do to get her to calm down, we start taking deep breaths with her. Some, sometimes we have to take very, very many. Sometimes it's only three. And so it is allows us to be able to breathe deeply. It's surprising to me that the first thing that God does when he welcomes man, when he creates him, in this world is that he breathes into him. He kisses him face to face, deep intimacy. I don't think we usually think of God as someone who wants to have deep intimacy with us. You know, in the hospital, we they used to. I don't think they do it anymore, Natalie. Slap them on the butt to get the baby to cry and to breathe. Um, and yet, that is usually what we feel like life gives us, right? Um, and so in this living, not in the presence, we look in the b- behind us, who people have told us, the stories that seem to continue to get played out, the trauma that happens over and over and over again in our lives, and then we project in the future that life will be better there. Instead, God encourages us to breathe, to breathe into his, breathe in his life and his spirit. So um, we're going to do something that's like super awkward because no one ever does this in church. We're just going to breathe. We're going to take a moment to do a breathing exercise. And so what I want you to do, because I want you to be present. I want you to feel um, God's grace upon you. I want you to feel his love coming in to your life. And maybe this is a way that you can do that. I want you to put your feet flat on the floor. I want you to get comfortable. I want you to sit up straight. I want you to put your hands out on your knees to have them open to receiving God. I want you to take, uh, I want you to close your eyes. This might be one of the few times I ask you to close your eyes in our, our church services. I know a lot of us may have grown up with that otherwise. But um, I want you to breathe deeply through your nose and hold it for about a three-second count. And out through your mouth. Do it again.
Dieu tout terme. What did you feel? Slow. Hmm? Present. Relaxed. Difficult? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and breathing through your diaphragm is preferred. Far yes, far deeper. One counselor of mine said, uh, if you feel overwhelmed in a situation, um, get, get out of it. Go to, like Even just going to the bathroom, removing yourself from the immediacy of whatever you feel as a threat. And to begin to think of your, your feet are grounded. You, you can sit down or you stand up. But just to begin to place yourself present and to breathe deeply. Because suddenly you're you're going okay. That's a perceived threat. Maybe it's not an actual threat. Um, in my cases, most of the time, I think it's a perceived threat. Um, but to begin to 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 place yourself where you are, and to feel that deep breath that you have, to be able to allow that weight that you're feeling to be released, to have your shoulders relaxed, uh, to be able to gather your mind um, and not like centering in like a in an opening up or a new age kind of a thing but just centering yourself and understanding your presence your physical God created you he formed you somatically so you have a body he formed your neurons he formed your capillaries and all of the things that make up a part of your body and he calls them good so that we can experience simply by breathing the gift of life that God gives to us. He has gifted us our body. He has gifted us our breath. And he leans in close to kiss you, to remind you of his love for you and your breath. The first thing that God gives us is presence. The second thing is purpose in that we... Uh, it's amazing to me to see that the writer takes like a whole paragraph just to describe the land of Eden, all these rivers and the uh, precious stones and metals that are in there. And he's like giving you the geography of this place as if we're like going to go back and like find the Tigris and Euphrates and then find the other rivers. I've looked on a map. I haven't found them. Maybe that's my problem, though. But just as in. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just as in Genesis 1, I haven't zoomed in on Google Earth enough. Um, 
the writer is showing us how God, like this water is always an image of chaos. And what we see when uh, the writer of Scripture comes up against chaos of water, we always see the power of God ordering it, writing it, giving it space and direction and boundaries. And so these rivers now, instead of just being this swarm and chaos that that the man would have to deal with, are these life-giving streams that, that water the garden, that nurture it, that bring life. And God places the man in the garden, within Eden, within all of creation, and he gives him a job to do. Oh, good. God created us for work. Okay, that's awesome. That's what I wanted to hear, right? But he puts them there to work and keep the garden, to cultivate it, to bring forth life. There are trees and there are plants and all these things there already. And God says, get your hands in the soil like I did. Come alongside me in the work that I have to do. Let's create life together. And yet he gives him a warning. He gives him a command in this. He says, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For what you do, or when you do, you will surely die. Well, as we know, he didn't die right away when he ate it. Uh, one um, translator says uh, the, the construction of the grammar here uh, really means that you will be doomed to die, that death will come out of eating of this particular tree. It's interesting, two trees were mentioned, right? But the focus, the command is on not eating one. He gives them work to do, but he also places boundaries around it. And I wonder if this wasn't a reminder to him that he still needs to rely on God for the provision of the fruit of his labor and that he is working on behalf of God, that he is working with and alongside God. This garden doesn't belong to God, God uh, to the man. He didn't give it to him to own it and to to just do whatever he wanted with it. He gave it to him to work it and to keep it to cultivate life out of it. It's under the man's care and along with God together they will bring life out of it. I think our modern Minds almost this seems kind of like cruel that we have to go and work and uh, not enjoy all the fruits of our labor that we are given, uh, af- uh, that there are boundaries on it. Why can't I have it all? I want it all. That is our American mindset and dream, isn't it? But I actually think it's more freeing to have boundaries placed around us in our work and in our, our vocation and our job. God is asking us to join with him in the life-giving, cultivating work in this world. And that seems like a huge task. And yet, when he gives us boundaries, he's also saying, you can't do it all. I placed you in my garden in Southampton. I placed you in my garden in this high school. I placed you in my garden, in your family, at Denver Seminary, at um, what school? We were talking, Stacey and I were, what school are you at? What? Challenge. Okay. I'm like, I want to personalize that. Okay. The Garden of Challenge, right? That, that might have other issues uh, with that. But where he has placed us in, in um, Highlands Ranch, uh, in our apartment complex, in our neighborhood, 
God has put us very specific in very specific places so that we can cultivate his life-giving work in these places. We don't have to do it all. We have these notions of fame and influence and grandiosity, and we have all this self-importance, but God reminds us, just work here. I just want you to cultivate this plot. This is what I'm giving you to work. Um, There's a story told of a guy visiting uh, a, a very well-known gardener. He said, I want to see, see your garden. Let's go out and take a tour of it. And so he, they go out and they begin this tour, and the guy thinks it's going to be a very quick thing. But it's just, it's just his yard, and they're going through, and, and the man's stopping, the, the gardener is stopping to point out all these little plants and things. But while he's in there, he's like, oh, there's a weed. I'll pull that out. Oh, this needs trimming. And he just gets consumed with the work as he's walking through. And, you know, these berries are ready to harvest Let's pull this. This herb is this. Try this. And he's just taking full delight in what God has given to him. And this tour, just kind of the guy's finally like, I have to go. I don't, I don't have any more time to be here. But that is what God is asking us to do, to take pleasure, delight, to know deeply these place, this place where he has put us. Theologians call this the cultural mandate where we as humans get to exercise our responsibility and creativity when it comes to the work that God has given us, knowing that we are joining in his work, and his work multiplies our efforts, goes way beyond what we can do all on our own. There are a lot of work distortions um, that really have that take place um, after the fall that Nick gets at um, next week in Genesis 3. Um, we can idolize all of these things. We can fall headlong into uh, the misery of work. There's a lot of um, problems with it. But um, what, the, what the commentators remind us is that n- all work can be done to the service of God. All work can be done with him in mind. Frederick Buechner um, uh, was a, um, a pastor and writer, and he says, uh, the place God calls you is to the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. Where God, The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. God has created you for a purpose. He's created you and to work with him, to be in this life-giving work with him. As a side note, I think we spend a lot of energy and understanding on the, um, trying to understand the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it's actually only referenced one more time in Scripture, and that's in Genesis 3. After that, there's no more mentions of it. What is mentioned over and over and over again is the tree of life. And ultimately, in the end of the story in Revelation, we see this tree of life being planted in this new Jerusalem, this new city of God, which descends in which heaven and earth are um, brought together once again. The, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is um, a distraction in our lives uh, uh, when we're looking and trying to understand what is going on. What God does is he gives us purpose and he calls us into his to reflect his image as we work with him where he has placed us. Lastly, partnership. I knew I was going to be too long. All right, partnership. God declares, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
He forms every beast out of the ground. He brings forth livestock and birds and so on. The man names all the animals, but none of them strike his fancy. And so like we do with toddlers and kids, we go, let's take a nap. Uh, so God puts, gives, the, t- gives the man a nap, and while he's doing so, he removes a rib. I would suggest that. And he forms a woman and presents her to the man. And here we have the man's first speech. And it's a love poem. And it's a song that he bursts into. At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's this partnership. There's a togetherness. And then the narrator breaks this fourth plane, which is really kind of odd, right? He kind of turns to us, the audience, the readers, and gives this lesson. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then he returns to us and gives us just this overwhelming, beautiful picture of what uh, this relationship is. They were both naked and unashamed. Few things, few thoughts. It is not good to be alone. God immediately recognizes that something is not right with the man. A prerequisite for all of life is not being met. Companionship, partnership, community. And so this is the first thing that God calls not good. He creates all these animals, and yet he says companionship cannot just be a dog. Like, we, that's kind of what I hoped my life would be at one point, was just me and my dog just doing the thing. But when the man breaks into song, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is the same sub- substance, equal in God-breathed life, not just hummus formation. They are complementarian, and they are egalitarian. This can be a couple, like, super-loaded words for us, depending on your church background. But this is not what the church tells us, <laughs> that uh, um, man and woman complement one another and they are equal to one another. This word ezer is helper that is used here. Um, it can be a helpmate, but this is like kind of a weak way of doing it. One commentator says, or one translator says, this is a, an incredibly weak translation. And it connotes what actually is the word holds is this active intervention on behalf of someone, especially in military contexts. This word is most often used in the Psalms. Psalm 3010, the psalmist writes, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my Ezer. Psalm 54.4, Behold, God is my Ezra, 72.12, he said, For he delivers the needy when he calls and the poor, and him who has no Ezra, God becomes one to him. Psalm 107.12, So he bowed their hearts down with uh, hard labor. They fell down with, no, with none to help, uh, with none to Ezra. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. We, if we uh, as men lower the status of women because of this helpmate old, old way of doing it, that is not what the text says in this passage. God is lifting up 
women to be alongside men, to be an active intervention for us, especially in military context. And then God over and over and over again calls himself a helper, an ezer as well. He is, he provides life sustaining help, the very help we need. In doing so, they become one flesh. This is uh, uh, a, a reference to marriage here when the narrator breaks the fourth plane and the physical act of sex, which we're not going to get into uh, here today. But I just want to quickly point out this uh, beautiful picture of reunioning the man and the woman. This body, this this um, piece of the physical piece of the man was removed and in marriage they come back together and reunion reunite physically i think it's just an absolute beautiful picture of what um that act what sex the act of marriage does and lastly they are naked and unashamed who's ever been naked and unashamed by themselves let alone like with someone else. This is a truly glorious statement of what could be, what we long for in relationships in general and especially in marriage. And I truly believe that it's only in Christ that we can find this kind of relationship again. It's through Him taking on our sin and shame and delivering us from that so that we can be naked in and amongst people. Our shame can be seen with one another in community, whether that's in marriage or whether that's uh, in the church community. Because single, like, we're not all married here, FYI. Um, Some of us are single. And it goes on, Scripture doesn't just speak one voice in this. Marriage is not the end all. It doesn't solve all of our human problems. Paul, in fact, seems to say that they tend to increase when they when we get married. We may have had illusions at one time that once, once we get married, all our problems will go away and that we'll just be happily ever after. That's what Disney wants us to believe. But the truth is we just continue to have problems because we are sinful, broken people living out of stories uh, that, um, that we don't fully embrace or that ones that have been told to us. But even in our singleness, there is uh, a need for us to not be alone. I believe that this happens in Christ because I believe that it happens in the church community to fill in that need. When I was single in Chicago and out of seminary, uh, freshly out of seminary, I was going to a church there called Grace, and none of us were married. We found, um, not n- none of my friend group were married, but we found community so that we could be together in this huge city and that we could have deep friendship while we were there. I think every single person in that French friend group is now married and is living somewhere else. But we were able to be together. We upheld one another. We could call them when we were moving or when we were stressed out or when whatever was going on. We were able to never be alone in that. I hope and pray that here at the table, uh, as we are providing a place at the table of God's grace, this would be true here also. 
This naturally implies community when we sit down at a table of God's grace together, that we have partnership, that you will not have the ability to be alone. That is our hope and prayer. And yet I want you, I know the desire to not be naked, to not be exposed in our sin, to not uh, show our shame to everyone. Um, And so we often carry uh, around with us. um, And that makes us a huge, that gives us a huge challenge. Maybe your own church experiences in the past have caused you to carry extra layers over what your nakedness, over your shame. We might be even be tempted at one time or another to leave or worse yet to not allow someone else to come into this community to have a place at the table um one if you leave you should know your baggage is going with you um and i don't want you to bear that load by yourself um and also any relational issues you have here will likely show up somewhere else. So let's dig deep (laughs) Um, and knowing that we will have those things. But maybe, too, this is also a place where God wants to dig deep into the hummus of your life, to cultivate the garden of your soul with others so that new life can spring forth, so that you nourish both so that both your soul is nourished and the life of others is nourished around you. Community, partnership, um, companionship is something that we have to cultivate. It is a work. It doesn't just happen naturally. God is breathing his spirit into this place to imbue it with his life of love and beauty. It's a place for us to exercise our purpose, to exercise our gifting, but also to be strengthened as we go out of here into the places where he has placed us to live out the purpose that he has um, for us outside of our Sunday morning worship into all of life. And this, no matter what our marital status no matter what our life looks like, is how we know that we are not alone. All our sin, all our shame was taken on by Christ when he went to the cross. He was nailed to it naked. He was seen for all that he was, the bloody, scourged mess of a human. And yet he bore that, nailed to the tree, and taking on our shamefulness, taking on our sin, and through his spirit, we are able to be formed into a new community with new giftings and new life. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that um, uh, that you formed us, that you give us life, that you breathe life into us over and over and over again. We are grateful for your mercy that you never leave us alone. Thank you for giving us boundaries to our lives so that we don't have to be uh, little gods, that we know we don't have to do it, uh, we don't have to do everything, and we don't have to do it alone as well. Thank you for this community uh, that you call the table. Thank you for uh, the body of Christ that you are forming. Lord, allow this to be a place where our sin and shame can be shown forth so that the beauty of the life that you are working and cultivating in us can be shown forth all the more. Lord, cultivate the gardens of our lives and bring forth new life. In your holy name we pray. Amen.